Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. All right. Tommy is about to books. One, two, one, two, three, four. And welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour to misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. Uh, 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 no, no, you're not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm definitely Sydney McElroy, but you're my dad. I'm your co-host, Tommy Smurl, and I am just a dude. <laughs> That's right. This is a very different Sawbones this week. It's a crossover. We've switched it up. Uh, we uh, we here at Sawbones, it, it, you're probably familiar, we like to talk about medical history and stupid, awful medical things that we've done throughout history uh, because we didn't know anything. And my dad, whose name, by the way, is Tommy Smurl, I'm introducing you. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> does a podcast that does the, sort of the same thing with legal matters called Court Appointed with my uncle, Michael Meadows. That's right. And so we got the idea, said, here's a topic that kind of is part medical and part legal. Why don't we do a big podcast? And then Justin said, let's just swap dumb guys. <laughs> you go over with Sydney and I'll go over with Michael and we'll do the same topic, but cover it from both angles. So you have a sister episode now. Now it should be noted that I did not refer to them as the dumb guys. <laughs> it's, it's a Twitter thing. It's a Twitter thing. Yeah, they talk about the dumb guys on those shows. <laughs> no, we just you're just not the experts. That's a lot more cumbersome. Just We're, the not experts. I clarify that by saying I'm just a dude. Uh -huh. <laughs> that, that takes me out of the equation. No, I'm not held responsible for anything. <laughs> so we, we wanted to talk a little bit about patient privacy and uh, HIPAA, which you hear thrown around a lot, but a lot of people don't know what that stands for, what that means. And this is definitely a topic that has both medical and, of course, legal implications. Uh, myself as a physician, I have my own kind of perspective on it. And then on Court Appointed, uh, my Uncle Michael is a lawyer, so he'll be taking the same topic from a legal perspective. So, so let's talk about patient privacy. All right. That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> Since that's our show. Uh, the idea of patient privacy is not new. It's very old. It goes back as far as, I mean, when we really think about the history of medicine, a lot of the time, especially on Sawbones, I'll start with Hippocrates. Now, of course, we were doing weird things to people even before that. Uh, but we kind of think of that as the beginning of the medical profession. Isn't that ironic? Hippocrates and HIPAA? That's I almost true. think it came from that. Yeah. And I guess it didn't have anything to do with it because it's a, what do you call it, an acronym? Yeah. It, you know, it didn't, but they so often will choose those kinds of acronyms to like represent that. They do that with medical studies a lot too, where they try to pick something that sounds 
exciting or revolutionary as the acronym for the study when it's really just about like which cholesterol drug is better or something. So give it an exciting name and it makes it more exciting. Yeah, it's, because it's our, it's our nerdy stuff, so we're trying to get people interested in it. For the commercials <laughs> later when they yeah. try to get, convince you to tell your doctor that you want that. Well, according to this very cool trial. Uh, the So Hippocrates, of course, wrote the Hippocratic Oath. And patient privacy is specifically mentioned in the Hippocratic Oath. And what it states in the original version is, and whatsoever I shall see or hear in the course of my profession, as well as outside my profession in my intercourse with men, if it be what should not be published abroad, I will never divulge holding such things to be holy secrets. So hmm. basically, I'm not, I'm not going to tell anybody what we do. What, ha- what happens in the doctor's office stays in the doctor's office. So they were like in Vegas. Exactly. It was the same idea. Okay. And this was largely tied to the fact that historically, doctors initially were very closely tied to priests. So uh, while by the time the because Hippocratic... killed a lot of people? <laughs> what? No. <laughs> Wait, what do you think priests do? <laughs> From the administer last rites. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, that's a fair comparison. We didn't know what we were doing. Um, <laughs> no, but I, because by the time, now to be fair, by in, in Hippocrates' time, physicians were beginning to become more regarded as like craftsmen, tradesmen, like guild members, that kind of thing. They were still very closely tied to their religious roots um, because... For the begin for ancient history, medical problems were largely seen as like punishments from the gods, or if you got better, it was a divine intervention. Whatever healer coached you through that, therefore, was imbued with some sort of spiritual powers as well. So you can see that like close connection. So priests, in fact, were doctors for a long time. Uh, you know, and I mean, like if you look at like shamans and medical men and that kind of stuff, the two were very tied. And so I think you see that related. Um, that just as a priest holds your your you know secrets very sacred, you know, I mean, if you go confess to a priest, they're not going to tell anybody. The same was expected of a doctor for that reason. I'd never thought of that, but when you think about things like Native Americans, they had their doctors were also the spiritual mm-hmm. leaders a lot of times there, and you, you, when they run into you know tribes in 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 the woods that have been back in there. And people don't know much about. Usually, the spiritual leader is also the medicine man, or, exactly. or whatever like that. Exactly. And if you think about the origins of disease as being thought to be divine, you know, punishments or whatever, it makes sense. You'd want somebody who understood the body, but also was in touch with the spiritual realm, um, because then curing you of disease is very much like exorcism. And so, then the corollary to a priest becomes very clear. That kind of so. goes back to your detox uh, episode, huh? Yeah, that's true. Exorcism, <laughs> all the bad yeah. stuff coming out. Get all the bad stuff out. Uh, so alongside this belief is the directive that we refrain from any wrongdoing. So we're supposed to keep our, our patient secrets sacred and secret and not tell anybody because that is the trust you put in your spiritual healer, your physician, whatever, you know, whatever we are at that point in history. But at the same time, we're not supposed to hurt you. You know, that that primum non nocerum, first do no harm, is not actually in the Hippocratic Oath. That actually came along in like the 17th century. 
<laughs> but it does make a point in the Hippocratic Oath that we we should be we should refrain from wrongdoing, which is, I mean, the same idea. Uh, that's a good idea in general. <laughs> I mean, does it really have to be written in there? Try not to kill them, you know? I mean, Dad, I know you're new to this show, but trust me, we've done some pretty messed up stuff in history. <laughs> It it was it was important to remind doctors like try not to hurt anybody. I think that do no harm was a movie title too. Uh, had something to do with that. It may have been. It may have been. Uh, but because we were also tasked with not hurting people over time, physicians took this to mean that sometimes, in order to help your patient, you had to tell their secrets. That sometimes, if they you know, couldn't take control of their own health care or they weren't able to do things for themselves that you might have to divulge this information to somebody else to help them, to help them manage whatever it is or make a decision or keep them from doing something that you thought would harm them. Uh, and so that that's like a direct conflict. You want to keep their secrets, but at the same time, if we're not supposed to hurt them, maybe sometimes, and that's a very paternalistic attitude of medicine, sometimes for their own good, I'm going to tell somebody their secrets. Um, and that was completely left up to the doctor. So it's your own discretion. What do you think you need to do in someone's best interest? Well, I don't know. It's up to each individual person who just happens to become a doctor. And some people are better at making those decisions than others. Exactly. That's a lot of power to just put in physicians. I mean, like, I like to think that I'm... I'm okay at science and I, I care about people a lot. And so therefore I had a talent for medicine and I was able to get through medical school, but that doesn't necessarily make me this great person. I think you're a great person. Well, thank you, dad. I hope I'm a great person, but it, do <laughs> it doesn't necessarily make me one just because that's the job I chose. And so well, your mom and dad, think you are. <laughs> there are a lot of wonderful doctors, but that the two, you know, the two, ca you can't assume one. Um, and, and, uh, also, the other exception that's in the oath is, and it's in that, that paragraph I read, if the information be what should be published abroad, and what they're talking about is if this is important information that maybe we need to share with the world so that we, you know, further our understanding of the human body, then we need to share it as well. Like, so like if it's a big breakthrough about something exactly. that could save lives, you find something with mm -hmm. someone that uh, is a disease and you find a cure because of it, and then you need to share it. Exactly. And so then at that point, you have to make the decision, is it something I need to do to do that with or not? And then it's okay to do it if you decide it is. So we see that even though this was this sacred duty, we're already kind of like, well, but almost all the time, <laughs> almost. <laughs> Um, this idea that it was that kind of this sacred duty, like it changed throughout the middle ages when it became more of like a mark of decorum, a doctor would not be respected or trusted. If you gossiped about your patient, you would think they were less professional. Sure. So, so maintaining privacy became more tied to professional behavior. And this was mentioned specifically in this treatise written by John Adern in 1370. And it was a treatise on anal fistulas. <laughs> And then he says specifically, you really shouldn't talk about your patients. And you can kind of see why. Yeah. <laughs> if you're writing a treatise on anal fistulas, that you'd be, you should be like, and also, please, don't go tell all your patient's friends about his anal fistula. Come on. Hey, John, what's your paper about, uh, a-holes? <laughs> <laughs> be a buddy and don't go tell everybody about the anal fistulas. <laughs> 
Um, Why would you want to tell people about the anal fistulas? <laughs> of all the topics I've picked, I've never picked that topic. You know, uh, Dad, we did an episode on uh, anal fistulas once. They, they were in... They were in fashion for a while. King Louis brought them into fashion. In fashion? How yes. can an anal fistula be in fashion? He had one and he was the king, so it became the fashion. I, There's no accounting for taste. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that's like a pierced belly button or something. <laughs> I, think, I think it's more uncomfortable. <laughs> and not as... I, I've never had either, but... <laughs> not openly displayed. <laughs> The, the first, when we see this idea being challenged from outside, because a lot of this we've talked about is like physicians are mandating it for themselves. Uh, we see this being challenged from the outside in the 14 and 1500s as the great pox, which was syphilis, is spreading through Europe. Uh, physicians are being compelled by local authorities to report the names of patients with syphilis to them. And this is clearly in violation of the oath and what physicians believe their job is. And this is actually taken to court repeatedly as physicians are fighting for their right to keep their patients secrets uh, and judges are, are trying to force them otherwise. And there are a lot of compelling arguments about trust. Like, and this is where we start to see that argument. If I start telling people, Hey, my, this dude's got syphilis, nobody's going to come to me for treatment for syphilis anymore. Cause they're going to know that I tell people. And so it's going to be bad for patients. It's bad for the public health they need to know they can trust me or else nobody will seek medical care. And that's where you start to see that argument arise. Um, and physicians fought really hard and they made really compelling arguments. And ultimately in every case, the judges agreed with them like, well, hmm. you're right. And, and what usually turned it is that they said, you know, syphilis doesn't just strike. I mean, it's, it's not like a class thing. Anybody can get syphilis, maybe even judges. And if a judge got syphilis, wouldn't that judge want me to keep it quiet? And he then they said, I would. I mean, <laughs> yes, he would. And then they ruled in their favor. <laughs> um, they did, uh, I would note, they did make an exception where the judges were like, you're right, you're right. We could, we could reveal some really personal secrets for some people that we like, so we won't do that. But you're going to give me a list of like the, quote, ruffians and prostitutes, right? <laughs> <laughs> Just the, the ne'er do wells, and the doctors were usually like, "Well, okay, that's fine. Yeah, of course I'll do that." So, <laughs> oh man, yeah, that, obviously, is that where they got a pox upon you? That <laughs> one same? of one of <laughs> that. This is in the syphilis was a great pox as opposed to the smallpox. <laughs> syphilis was a great pox. It was, and overall poxes. That's a great pox. <laughs> I think, man, <laughs> I don't know that they mean great as in like great job. I think they mean oh. great as in like. It's it's like be, like great. Yeah, like you tell your friend, hey, I got syphilis. Oh, you got the great one, man. You're lucky. I just got. I the never small get the good one. pox. Golly. And then Fred over there got the chicken one. That's no good. Uh, chicken, but now he'll be uh, liable to get shingles later in life. There you go. <laughs> I wouldn't know that if they didn't have the commercial. <laughs> and then you got to look at it. Um, obviously we were far from really a, a great code of medical ethics at this point, since like it was okay to divulge, you know, the, what we were considered at the time, the lower tiers of society, it was okay <laughs> to divulge their medical information, but not a judge. Um, and, but that starts to improve. We see confidentiality kind of codified throughout writings in the 1700s in Europe, as well as in the early days of the U S um, throughout U S history, you see more and more stress on patient privacy and on only disclosing a patient's information to them as opposed to family members. Like that's kind of that notion in the U S is really ingrained 
Like the idea that you, that, you know, that dad, you would be sick and I wouldn't tell you about it. I would only tell mom, you know, if I was just your doctor and not your daughter, that mm-hmm. would be crazy. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't even think to do that, but that's, that has been, I think, unique in the U S now that is true in other countries as well now, but it wasn't throughout history. Well, now you, you have to sign something for other people to get information. Exactly. I mean, right. I mean, like even if it's your wife or something, they'll only tell you unless you sign something saying it's okay for this person to hear this information. That's exactly right. And that can make it very tricky sometimes as a family doctor where I take care of a lot of large families and you get a lot of like, Hey, you saw cousin Bob the other day. How's he doing? And I have to say, I can't. I, I can't, can't speak about it. I can't it. say anything. He has the bad pox, though. But you got to say it in a way that <laughs> you got to say it in a way that they'll still like you. So I'll be like, oh, I love cousin Bob. Anyway, how are your feet? Like, you know, <laughs> like something. You know, I don't want to, but I can't talk about it. Well, um, at least you won't have to worry about buying cousin Bob a Christmas present. <laughs> don't expect him to be around then. No. <laughs> um, this was actually there's a, you begin to see also a stress in early writings in the U.S. on the health of women patients being kept private because throughout history, as you can imagine, since women were barely, barely considered their own property, uh, that their health information was certainly not considered their own property. And so you would see this in cases of like, you want to marry somebody, but you want to make sure she's like good stock. And so you can get information from her doctor or, or a husband could easily get information on his wife's health that his wife would never be given. I mean, the doctor would go examine the woman and then go tell her husband everything about her. And she would just sit there quietly. Give me the lowdown, doc. Exactly. I, I mean, and so you start to see this this idea that, you know, it's I know it's crazy that women are people and maybe they have rights of their own and maybe you should tell them about their health. Which you was, have a look under the hood? Yeah, that, yeah, <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> to be fair, this could be true in the inverse in some cases for royalty. There were cases where, like princess would be betrothed to somebody and they would say well let's check this guy out is he good stock too so it could go the other way sure um the exception that lingers though at this period in history is the terminally ill patient and this this argument comes into play a lot between a lot of the great and like early u.s and european thinkers of the time who were saying like either is it okay to lie to a patient who has no hope of ever getting better and say, like they say, promise them cure in all cases, even though they are hopeless. That is, that is written. Like go in and say, yes, I'm going to make you better in two or three months. You're going to be back on your feet again. Don't worry. And then go in the next room and tell their family, listen, you're going to need to get funeral preparations underway. Mm. And that was a, that was a common idea at the time. Whereas you begin to see people in the U S saying, I don't like that. You know, we, we should, Maybe we should start to tell people. Well, you know, you, you hear the thing about people would tend to live their lives differently if they knew they were on limited time, maybe make more of the moments. So exactly. You know, maybe you'd want to do that if you knew and if you keep that from them or the burden falls to the family then to have to pass that news to them. Right. Which is even worse. And a lot of this was, again, done with that. It wasn't malicious. It was that paternalistic idea like this is in your best interest. It will do you no good to know this. As your doctor, I get to make the decision what is in your best interest, and, I, and so this is what I'm doing. This went so far as as some doctors, especially there was one doctor back from the Middle Ages, Doctor McKinney, who would say, who wrote in an essay on medical ethics, 
that you should never become knowingly involved with any who are about to die or who are incurable. So basically just stay away from really sick people so you don't have to deal with this ethical conundrum. Hey, don't go to room 3B. I mean, that's what really is advice to doctors was like, it's really difficult. You don't know if you should lie or not. Basically, just don't. Don't get involved. Slide the tray under the door and run. <laughs> that way, if he asks you any questions, you don't have to. You don't have to lie to him. You don't tell the truth either. You can just don't answer. Doc, be square with me. Am I gonna? Am I gonna be okay? I gotta go. I got an appointment. Oh, look at the time. <laughs> Ooh, I gotta milk the cows and slop the pigs. I got and... bills to pay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dad, things got better, and I want to tell you about it. But first, why don't you come with me to the billing department? Well, all right. Lead the way. <laughs> You've never been there before. No, I've never been to the billing department. The medicines, the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth. All right. Our first uh, sponsor this week on Sawbones is MeUndies. Now, you're going to wear underwear pretty much every day. And so don't you want them to be comfortable? And that's the truth with MeUndies. They are incredibly comfortable underwear. We talk about a lot of talk about them a lot on the show because we wear them all the time. They're made from sustainably sourced micromodal fabric that is three times softer than cotton. And Dad, even you can vouch that they are great underwear. That is absolutely true. And I have no idea what modal is. (laughs) I know I like the underwear. I'd heard you all do the ads on them before, and so when mine were wearing out, I decided I want to get MeUndies. (laughs) <laughs> so I got me undies, so, and I've been wearing them ever since, and I love them. And and they are even worth this horrible, traumatic fact that now I know the kind of underwear my dad wears. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to know what kind of underwear you wear. <laughs> I've heard you and Justin both say that you like them and yet you wear them. I'm wearing them right now. <laughs> I'm not just the president of the hair club. I'm a member. If we're wearing matching underwear, I'm never doing this show again. <laughs> Uh, They come in all kinds of adventurous patterns. (laughs) They're incredibly soft. Uh, You can get matching ones, which in this case is terrifying, although it's usually awesome. We will never know. Uh, You could get a subscription, and uh, that will save you time and money. Um, But if you don't want to get a subscription just yet, if you still want to think it over... And you just, but you do want to try them out, which you do. You can still save. That's because MeUndies is offering you twenty percent off your first pair. You just use our special URL, meundies.com/sawbones, and get twenty percent off your first pair. And that is meundies, as in M-E-U-N-D-I-E-S dot com slash sawbones. Go ahead, revamp your underwear drawer. You deserve it. Once again, that's meundies.com slash sawbones. This dude highly recommends it. <laughs> Our other sponsor this week is NatureBox. Now, we live busy lives. Everybody does. I'm not unique in that. We all live busy lives. And so we often don't have time to sit down and make a meal, and we resort to snacking. The problem is that when we snack, we often reach for junk food. But we can do better than that. You can snack healthy just like we do with NatureBox. They make snacks that actually taste great And they're better for you because they're free from things like artificial colors, flavors, sweeteners. You can feel really good about snacking. I talk about them all the time, but salt and pepper lentil loops are one of the most delicious things you will ever eat. (laughs) I promise you. 
I know. Salt and pepper lentil loops? They are delicious. I eat fruit loops. No, That's these different, huh? These are so much better. They're one of the most delicious snacks and they're good. They're they're healthy and they're so much better than any other chip you're gonna buy uh, in the store. So check those out. I talk about the coffee popcorn all the time. It's delicious. The Big Island pineapple is a way that I've snuck fruit into my daughter. Uh, so there are all kinds of delicious not snacks. You can go to their catalog, their snack catalog. Uh, there are over a hundred snacks to choose from. They're constantly adding new delicious ones. Uh, so you never get bored. Um, and if for some reason you don't like a snack, nature box will replace it for free. Although that's not going to happen. So right now, you'll save even more by going to NatureBox. Um, you can go, our, they are offering our fans 50% off. Your 50%? First that's almost half. <laughs> that's exactly half. Oh. <laughs> 50% off your first order when you go to naturebox.com slash sawbones. That's naturebox.com slash sawbones for 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com slash sawbones. So... As I said, Dad, things had to get better. They had to get better. <laughs> well, yeah, that's usually the turning point in this show. Something has to get better. <laughs> um, like I said, while this while this idea persisted in the 1700s in many parts of Europe that you could lie to a patient who was terminally ill um, for their own good was the thought process. Uh, in the U.S., especially during the Revolutionary Period, things started to change. Um, we've talked about Benjamin Rush on this show, the father of psychiatry, and I've I've thrown some shade at old Ben because he did some some pretty questionable things, Dad, some pretty mm. whack stuff. Um, but he did urge physicians to be honest and not lie about death, uh, and that sometimes you just, even though it's hard, you got to tell a patient the truth, and that that might actually be in their best interest, which was a revolutionary idea. So he he was uh, not good in some things, but uh, in this case he was all right, huh? Yeah, in this case he was all right. He, I, you know, that's a that's a whole argument. I get a, I got a lot of emails about how Benjamin Rush was a good guy, and like, I, yeah, he did some good things. He he saw psychiatric patients as people and treated them as people, which was strangely enough revolutionary as well. Um, but then there were some crazy treatments too. We have an episode on it. You can check out. I will. I'll check that one out. Uh, Thomas Percival wrote the first modern, what we consider first modern code of medical ethics in 1803. And it was pretty widely accepted, even all the way across the Atlantic here in the U.S. It was adopted by the early American Medical Association. Um, there were a lot of things, obviously, in the code of medical ethics, not just patient privacy, but that was explicitly mentioned. Um, although in that same section where they talked about you need to keep your patient's secrets private, they also said... Also, if one of your other doctors is up to no good, don't tell anybody, <laughs> which is, you know, not true now. I'm actually explicitly tasked to tell somebody if one of my other doctors is doing something wrong. Yeah, it's like the code of, amongst cops and the same amongst policemen, huh? Well, don't, I don't, don't think, tell on each other. No, I don't think that's true now. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was. I think a lot of guilds probably. Serpico. You've seen Serpico, right? <laughs> I think a lot of like guild-type professions were probably like that. Like, we, we got each other's backs. Um, now, it's it's funny because I am, I am actually asked constantly when I'm evaluating my fellow physicians and recommending them, do I know of any, like problems with like addiction or substance abuse or that kind of thing or do i know of any reason that they can't do their job like i have to sign paper that says i don't that they're not so wow I, yeah i would I, you all have to report on each other oh yeah 
That's part of professionalism is that if I know somebody's not fit to do their job, I've got to go tell somebody. I mean, I can understand like administrative staff at a hospital that may, you know, Mm -hmm. have these judgments on it, but I didn't know they asked doctors to report on each other like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's considered core to our professionalism is that we wouldn't, we wouldn't let another doctor knowingly, we wouldn't let another doctor, you know, see patients if they were unfit for some reason. Well, I guess just put yourself in the place. What if they were treating your family member? Exactly. Exactly. So, so I, and, and I mean, I feel that way about my patients. I feel that way about their patients, even though I don't really know them, but I do. <laughs> but you do. Uh, we also begin to see at this point, courts and judges beginning to get involved, dictating the bounds of acceptable disclosures. So instead of physicians just kind of deciding for themselves, this is in a patient's best interest, so I'm going to go tell this private information, we start to see it being like, made law. No, this is when you get to doctors. You don't get to decide anymore. We're going to decide for you. Um, And as doctors begin to go to court over these issues because they are violating them, we also see less and less of them talking to patients' families instead of patients. You see it become pretty standard that, no, no, you should just talk to the patient about things. Don't go around them. Um, And from here and through the Declaration of Geneva, which was in 1948, we start to see a stress more on the idea that as opposed to this kind of um, this sacred thing, like the, but the privacy of a patient is something that is sacred to a physician and that it's part of their reputation, it begins, it begins to become like an absolute duty to the patient. That is not just a good idea. It's not just for professionalism's sake. It's your duty to... And it's the law. Exactly. And, and you, you start to see that the idea that there might be exceptions to that secrecy from an ethical standpoint begins to vanish, you know, that, that that becomes a very absolute ideal. Like, well, no, I would always keep my patient's privacy. Um, and part of that was probably in self-defense for all the laws that were being made. Um, but that was a big shift from an ethical perspective from sometimes it's in the patient's best interest and so I have to do it. It's, it's doing no harm to, nope, there is no exception to that. So it's kind of like when Ross started dating a student and he thought it was just <laughs> frowned upon. And actually, it was against the law. They had found that out the hard way. That's exactly it. Early on, (laughs) telling other people a patient's private medical history was frowned upon. (laughs) By now, it is definitely illegal. You have to do the air quotes when you say that. It was frowned upon. Frowned upon. Um, so, so we see that shift from a professional issue to a patient physician relationship issue to purely an issue of patient rights. It really has nothing to do with you as the doctor. It's the patient's right to privacy. Um, so later in the 1900s, we get this need. Okay. Well then if it is now an absolute right, when is it okay to violate it? We need it very clearly spelled out. What are the times that I can break that confidentiality and go tell somebody because I'm not going to do it unless you give me a list because I don't, you know. I also don't want to get sued. And that's where we get, that's where HIPAA comes into play. Now, HIPAA wasn't just about patient privacy. No, that was just a small part of it. It was actually about the portability of of your health care so that you didn't lose coverage going from one job to another. That's exactly right. And you know what's weird is as a physician, when I, I mean, as I was, I I have been educated on HIPAA many times. um, So I understand that. I guess, but 
for me, when I say HIPAA, I'm always thinking patient privacy, and I think most people do. Absolutely. Yeah. I, that's all I thought, I mean, until we were getting ready for this. Mm-hmm. I have to deal with it in, in my business, handling documents, confidential documents, yeah. and medical records, and things like that. So we have to be HIPAA compliant. And you think that's what the main thrust of the whole law was, but that was just a piece of it that didn't come in until about halfway down yeah. the actual law. That's, that's exactly right. It's just it's like one subsection of a section is the security provisions uh, where, and a lot of that was because, so the law was, was like, like you said, dad was to help make health insurance more portable for patients. That was a big part of it um, to like streamline the process, reduce waste and fraud and, and that kind of thing. And part of that was not, not a mandate for, but a big push for electronic health records. That was a big, a big piece of it, that that would make it more portable. Your information would become a lot more portable if it was electronic. Well, and more secure too. Yes. Um, you know, if it's done properly, it's more secure. Because I can remember one of the projects we had when this first came about was to go to a hospital that had files identified with Social Security numbers down the spine. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you didn't want Social Security numbers hanging out there because, you know, before that, yeah. you didn't really have identity theft. Now, this was tied to that as well. So we had to go through and relabel all these files for them because they were changing to a different type of identification system as opposed to your social security number. That, well, and that's a good idea. I wonder if they've, see, at the VA, they always use social security numbers, and I don't know if that's ever changed. On I, their files where they're mm-hmm. visible? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, That was that, those were the patient numbers were social security numbers. Wow. So I don't know if that's still true, though, because I, I haven't worked there since I was a student. But, yeah. but back when I was a student, I, that was. I would have to think that it's changed by now. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that because that was why, like, HIPAA always came into play. But whenever we rotated through the VA, we had, like, multiple more hours of training and reminding and taking tests and filling out more papers. And, man, if you tried to walk out of that building with any kind of PHI, protected health information, they were all over you. Right. Because Social Security numbers were all over everything. Um, so all this push for the EMR, the electronic health record came with a lot more privacy issues because if it's going to be on a computer, people can have access to it. Um, and so we see all these security rules laid out. Um, and since then up to 2013, the law has been continually refined to add for like, um, ways to, um, make the information harder, encrypt, that's the word I'm looking for, encrypt the information better in a computer so it's harder to get to. Um, and this has come into play with like, now we have things like the patient portal where patients can send me messages and I can send them messages back over a secure sort of like uh, email server. And in some cases, uh, patients can get access to their own medical records. The mm-hmm. hospital gives them access to it, whatever they have on file. We have that too. Yeah, through the portal, you can access your own records. We even have like a secret doctor texting now. It's like a secret text program that is that is HIPAA compliant so that I can text other physicians about patient information, you know, so that we can go like, through an encryption process. Probably. E- exactly. Mm-hmm. And so like in the hospital, we use that to communicate quickly with specialists often and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. That's um, why you can't email documents unless it's through an encrypted protocol. Exactly. I, I have to explain that all the time. If a patient emails me, I can't answer an email. I can't answer a Facebook question. Right. I can't do this. Yeah. Um, Large breaches of HIPAA can be very expensive. So like if a hospital has had some sort of break in their encryption or something, and you have to assume every patient who has been through their system has maybe been exposed, it could be like 200 bucks a patient at least to, you know, the fine for that or to deal with that. Um, and this doesn't even include state laws, which can add as much as 250000 for a breach of HIPAA. And they constantly have to tweak the law because of the technology. You have such new technology mm-hmm. rolling out all the time and different 
different ways. It's like when they first did this in 1996, who would have envisioned something like where I read in the paper where uh, I think it was a nurse in a room took a picture. Yeah, I heard about that. Of some guy's junk and sent it to her friends. I don't know why she wanted to. Well, I don't know if they knew him. That's or... terrible. I don't know who would do that. I wouldn't even. That wouldn't even occur to me. And and of course, in 1996, they didn't have any no. view of something like that taking place. And so you've got to constantly upgrade it because of the different law. Or, I mean, the different technology and stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, if we want to take a picture of something like a rash or something, I have to ask the patient to like sign all these documents, and we have to be careful. Like, we can't just take pictures with our phone. We have to get like a camera. Like, it's a whole thing. <laughs> Because we do that sometimes for like, because I work at a medical school. So like, oh, this is, I want to keep this for students. I want to include this in a presentation. I have like 30 things I have to do before I can do that. You, <laughs> I can't you, just take pictures. You don't ever want to be the guy that's getting examined by the doctor. And the doctor comes in and, and looks and says, wow, I've never seen that before. Hey, hey, get those other three doctors down the hall. Have them come in. Hey, have you ever seen this before? Look at this. Get the students. This. Get the students. Oh, we got to take some pictures of this. Now, as I said, there are there are some exceptions. So there are certain scenarios under which I can disclose your protected health information, and it's okay. Other than when I ask you, Anytime that I ask you and you sign a paper that says it's okay, I can. <laughs> but it, these are times where I don't have to ask you. So you don't have my permission, and but you can still go ahead and tell somebody about it. Yes. So, like for instance, if I'm going to send you to a specialist for something, I can send them your records. That's pretty obvious. Sure. I don't have to ask you. I just send them. Um, to get paid, so I like put your diagnoses on a bill. When I bill your insurance, I have to put something on it. So to get paid, I, you know, I disclose your information. It's common sense. Um, healthcare operations, like we have to do like quality improvement programs and things or training. Those would be things that would be acceptable uses. Um, there's mandatory reporting of certain diseases. So like communicable diseases, I have to report to state health department, you know, to, to authorities. Um, a lot of sexually transmitted infections are reportable. So, and we have a list. The health department that is mandated. handles it from there. Exactly. The, and we have a mandated list that we have to report. So you don't like put it on Craigslist or anything? No. And actually, <laughs> I say I, the, the lab usually reports this stuff. It's mm-hmm. not me. The lab tech just reports the positive result. Um, in addition, certain things like death, stat- death statistics are, are tracked. You know, that that's released. Well, if you're a death statistic, you're not going to probably complain about them <laughs> releasing information. Well, you might not complain, but it's still private. It's now indefinite. It used to be 50 years after you pass away, your information is still protected, and then it times out. I believe with the 2013, there was like this omnibus regulation that was passed. At that point, it just became indefinite. So you're protected forever. You're Hmm. good. Uh, I'll rest more peacefully knowing that. <laughs> the the FDA has some mandatory reporting for like adverse of, adverse events or product failures that then would I would have to disclose your information. Um, workplace injuries are like uh, um, uh, workers' comp issues. Sure. That I have to report that sometimes. Um, audits, if Medicaid or Medicare wants to come in and audit stuff, then I disclose your information to them. They want to make sure they're get, that you're billing properly or something like that. Exactly, to make sure I'm not committing fraud. Um, law enforcement. You wouldn't do that. I know you would I wouldn't. don't. I don't do that. I, I get in a lot of trouble. I'll vouch for <laughs> They come in again and ask, you tell them to call me. I'll tell them to call my dad. <laughs> That's right. I'll vouch for you. Um, law enforcement has very specific instances when they can, um, although they can broadly apply that, because basically if, if, if a judge tells you you have to, you have to. Yeah, I still think they need even further redefining on that, though. Um, yeah. When you have prisoners that walk away from hospitals and the police department doesn't know about it. 
That's true. If I have a patient in the hospital who has been like arrested, but then they have like a medical problem, so they bring them to the hospital for care, I can't call the police officers and tell them when they're discharged. And so then they just walk off. Yeah. And, and there's something <laughs> wrong there. But uh, I mean, uh, we've had a couple of instances around here and the hospitals mm-hmm. have said, look, we can't. I we'll, can't. We'll be in violation if we report it. No, I'd have to have like a, I, I think I'd have to have a court order telling me to. That's just whack, man. <laughs> Um, for research, we do it all the time. Although you, most of the time we tell patients that they're part of research, uh, you know, but, but we do collect data for research for organ donation, obviously, um, for driving. If a patient is deemed unsafe to drive and I tell them not to drive and they're not going to comply, I can report them to the DMV. Well, you know, that makes good sense. Yeah. So that we keep people who, for whatever reason, shouldn't drive. It's for the greater own. good. Exactly. That's what a lot of these come down to, the greater good. Well, and we have an, we, we have an ethical obligation to public health. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense. Um, sex offenders' identities are routinely disclosed. Um, I report child abuse cases to CPS. Um, and in addition, since there was a case in 1976, Tarasov First Regents, where a patient revealed to their psychiatrist that they intended to kill somebody... And then they left and killed that person. And so if I know someone is a direct imminent threat to someone else, then I then can reveal. In fact, I have a duty to reveal that information to save that other person's life and protect that other person. Good. I would hope so. Yeah. Um, And then there are like specialized government functions. Like if you want to fly a plane or be an astronaut or be in certain parts of the military, like I can disclose your information in order to allow or prevent you from doing so. So those are a lot of cases. Yeah. A lot of situations. Tell the Army about my flat feet so they can't draft me. Exactly. You're <laughs> F4? F4, something is like that. Is that what it is? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You're unfit. I, I, I wasn't involved in any of that, so I don't know. I inherited your flat feet, so I won't have to worry either. Well, as long as you don't get my bad knees. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, I hope that was helpful. That was very helpful. <laughs> Well, I think that applies to you too, Dad, with document storage and scanning this, you know. Absolutely. Know and, uh, you know, I thought that the mandate for medical records came about from from that same 1996 law that HIPAA comes from, but it's actually the, the mandate for mm-hmm. it actually came from the Affordable Care Act, which didn't take effect till 2010. Exactly, exactly. So yeah. it's two different things. So. A lot of us were already kind of there, though. I mean, it makes sense. Medical records just make sense. Absolutely. Yeah. And as a person that sells them, I I agree. (laughs) They absolutely make sense. Well, as a doctor that uses them, I appreciate them. But, Um, uh, and and they're, they're also coming into play, not just in the medical field, but in business and industry and stuff like that. I mean, you have human resource departments and things like that. And there again, you have sensitive information that needs to be protected. So Mm -hmm. it comes under the same type HIPAA requirements. Exactly. And, you know, and that's the thing I would say at the end of the day, as a doctor, my, I consider my primary goal to keep everything you tell me and everything we discuss secret at all times. It is rare if somebody's going to, I don't want to say violate HIPAA, but disclose PHI. If, if we think one of those scenarios that I just listed really matters um, I am going to take a long, hard look and stop and consider what do I need to disclose? Is it okay? Is it not something I can ask the patient first? I'd much rather get your permission than do it against your will. I mean, these are not things we take lightly. So I, would I think you normally that have said. someone to confer with, like uh, would the hospital provide like a staff lawyer or mm-hmm. a senior doctor of some type or something that you would confer with on this? I, I actually have legal counsel available to me all the time at, at work if I just want to ask a question. Just like, is this okay for me to to do or not? 
I feel so, it's my obligation to report this person to authorities. Mm-hmm. What do yeah. you think? Then I have somebody I can talk to about it. So that's yeah, good. Because I would take that very seriously, and I think the vast majority of physicians would. Yeah, I'm not a rat. I'm not a rat. <laughs> every now and then, you you got to. Well, thank you, Dad. This has been fun. Well, thank you for having me. I, I, I you know, I know that it's Justin's irregular, and you know. I didn't, don't want to mess up the good thing. And I, <laughs> it, 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 it may be that I go back to court appointed and they might have voted me off the island. They might want Justin <laughs> back all the time. So I might have just talked myself out of a job. Nah, I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> now, this has been a lot of fun. And um, you should definitely check out Court Appointed. Court Appointed. It's on iTunes. Mm-hmm. Or you can get it from Audio Boom. There you go. And you can check it out for the legal perspective on this with uh, my Uncle Michael, who is a lawyer, and Justin will be there as the, I'm not going to say the dumb guy, as the jokester, <laughs> as the goofster. Um, so I appreciate you having me and, and uh, participating in this crossover event. Well, no problem, Dad. Uh, you should check out MaximumFun.org for a lot of other wonderful podcasts. Um, thank you to, to everybody who listens to our show. Thank you to Maximum Fun for hosting us. And thank you to the taxpayers for our theme song, Medicines. I am your co-host, Tommy Smurl, <laughs> not Justin McElroy. I had to hesitate. I didn't know who I was. And I am Sydney McElroy. Don't drill a hole in your head. All right. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.